episode of the antibodies podcast today we have a special guest with us dr deepak rao who is an assistant professor of medicine and the co-director of the human immunology center at the brigham and women's hospital which is affiliated to harvard medical school welcome to the podcast uh, deepak thank you for having me and joining me today are the two lovely hosts natalie and eugenio hello Hello. Uh so the story for this paper actually the reason we are all here it started from one of the meetings that I attended I think it was in the past 6 months and I heard uh Dr. Rao's presentation about this paper uh that there are these unique type of T cells that can help that can help promote B cell responses and these T cells do not enter the follicle and when i was listening to this uh, talk i thought that yeah this is the kind of paper we should discuss on the podcast so that's how i thought maybe i should invite him and luckily deepak was kind enough to respond and here we are uh before before we start with anything deepak can you tell us something about your journey as a scientist sure so uh I I grew up sort of interested in um generally interested in how the body works uh mm-hmm. with the point of view that the, you know your your own body is sort of the only thing that's sort of inherently yours um and there's so many interesting things about it that we just don't quite understand that are not obvious you know why is it that um when a muscle contracts uh it squeezes and helps you move the arm how how exactly does that work um you know lots of sort of musings like that and um it was a feeling like that that took me to medical school as the place where it's really the only place where they teach you how the body works what each organ does and a little bit of a sense about how things things start to work together um and when i was in medical school uh i did a phd in immunology that was my first introduction to the the wonders of the immune system and um as i came out of my md phd thinking about how to apply this in medicine uh I was attracted to rheumatology because inflammation uh abnormal immune responses are so central in rheumatology the the interest in how the immune system goes awry in different autoimmune diseases how it causes different manifestations of disease you know according to which which organ gets attacked what cytokines get engaged what effector pathways get turned on um so Uh I ended up in medicine because I wanted to know how the body works. I ended up in immunology because it causes so many different problems and um uh you know the pathways that are involved are still mysterious. The cell-cell interactions are still mysterious. Um yeah, ton ton of interesting questions for us to work on. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool and I want to n- know something specific. You have an MD degree and not a lot of medical doctors go to being a researcher was there any motivation for you to become a researcher you know i sort of think of myself as a researcher first that um i wanted to be able to to um ask questions think of experiments that i thought would be informative and then um pursue them and try and try and pick apart the pieces of a scientific question um i like the idea of asking scientific questions in medicine because it's 
you know, these are questions that are obviously relevant. They mean a lot to, to, um, to the community. And you know, there's, there's, there's no difficulty in justifying why the questions are important. Um, and uh, having an MD, having done the medical training, gives you some perspective about um, what are, wh what do we think are the clinically relevant questions? What are the questions that physicians are struggling with as we see patients, um, you know, sort of clear important questions like for a patient with an autoimmune disease like lupus or like rheumatoid arthritis, which medication should I pick to, to help suppress the immune response in this person? Um, how do we come up with medications that will more effectively suppress the pathologic immune response but leave the rest of the immune system intact? These kinds of questions I think are ones that we struggle with clinically um, and that it really you know points you in a direction in terms of the kinds of questions that your lab might pursue. Yeah, and immunology is specifically very well connected to medicine. So I think that's totally right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, guys, so before we start talking about the paper and the terminology, I have this kick-ass joke for you. Hit us with it. What did the extra follicular T cell say to the germinal center B cell? What? What? Nothing, because he couldn't get to the germinal center. Aww. <laughs> Poor T cell. <laughs> I think we just one-up ourselves in the terms of the crappiest joke we ever told on those podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I think we, as we discuss the terminology, we're going to come to the part where I will explain this joke so that I've, I did not waste everybody's 10 seconds by telling this joke. <laughs> okay, let's move to the terminology section. And the first term for this article titled PD-1 high CXCR5 negative T peripheral helper cells promote B cell responses in lupus via MAF and IL-21. The first term we should talk about is the disease SLE itself. Uh, Deepak, how could you, how would you describe the disease to a layman? Sure. So lupus is a systemic autoimmune disease. It's driven by um, a pathologic immune response against multiple self proteins um, that can show up clinically with uh, a number of different manifestations. So disease that has um, uh, a broad autoimmune activation that causes uh, injury in a number of different organs. Most commonly in the skin, we see cutaneous manifestation of lupus. Uh, the kidney is the organ that's most importantly involved with um, uh, a large fraction of patients with lupus developing a condition called lupus nephritis, which causes damage to the kidneys and ultimately can, can end up with, um, uh, with end-stage renal disease. Um, but, but more broadly, many, many different organs can be affected by this broad autoimmune response in lupus. Uh, and so, so the diagnosis of lupus is challenging because it can show up in so many different ways. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, what we're doing now is trying to understand what are the immune pathways that get activated in this disease and, and how do we start to suppress those pathways? Okay. Since we since we are here at lupus, I wanted to talk about specifically lupus nephritis. As you said, this is a manifestation that specifically affects the kidneys. And an interesting thing about lupus nephritis is you have a lot of your 
uh, antibody antigen complexes, even complement complexes that get deposited inside the kidneys. And there are these unique antigen, they're like phagocytic cells in the kidneys called mesangial cells. And they can pick up these complexes, they can present it to T cells, and there's a lot of infiltration into the kidneys. And that, I, from my understanding of lupus nephritis, that makes it very hard for kidneys to do their job when they're just getting these loads of T cells and other cells coming into the kidneys. Uh, yeah, I, th mm -hmm. I think that's right. So you can think about the, the immune-mediated injury in the kidney in lupus um, in sort of two categories. So one is immune complexes that get deposited in the glomeruli, which are sort of the filtering you know, mechanisms in the kidney. Those immune complexes get stuck in the glomeruli, or maybe they even sort of bind directly to antigens within the glomerulus. Uh, that activates the complement cascade. You end up with many immune complexes that accumulate within the glomerulus and they disrupt the ability of the glomerulus to maintain a barrier and filter properly. That's, that's one clear mechanism in lupus nephritis. But in addition, we see this infiltration of immune cells into the kidney sort of more generally. And most of that immune infiltrate in the kidney is actually not in the glomeruli. It ends up in the interstitial space, sort of in between the tubules in the kidney. Um, and we know that there are T cells in those infiltrates, there are B cells in those infiltrates, there's macrophages. Uh, and trying to figure out what that inflammatory process is um, is still an ongoing sort of challenge in that um, histologically and by single cell sequencing, you can see all these immune cells that are infiltrating into the interstitium. Um, but what exactly they're doing there and, and what, what are the pathologic mediators there uh, is much less well understood. Oh, it's pretty cool. I didn't know about that. We learn new things every day. That's why we're here, right? <laughs> and actually, if you look at most, most of the time clinically, when we're looking at lupus nephritis, we're characterizing lupus nephritis based on the glomerular pattern, the, mm -hmm. um, uh, the classification of the extent of injury in the glomerulus. But actually, um, it, it, it seems that the extent of the interstitial infiltrates, the sort of immune cell infiltrates that end up distributed amongst the tubules in the kidney tissue, that probably is actually the stronger predictor of whether a patient is going to go on to develop end-stage renal disease. nice. Uh, so you think they, they just gather there first and maybe the patient never notices because it's only in the interstitium and then you don't catch it until it ends up in the, the functional part of the kidney, right? So maybe it's, it's something like that having to do with the development of the disease? It could be. So, you know, to what extent does the presence of interstitial infiltrates and the presence of the glomerular uh, um, immune complex deposition, to what extent do those sort of match up? We don't have a great feel for it yet, um, but it's certainly it's certainly not perfect. And you can have um, what looks like relatively mild glomerular disease and still a lot of immune infiltration into the kidney. Uh, so trying to tease out those different mechanisms um, is is uh, is ongoing, and it's it's one of the major goals of a consortium effort called the Accelerating Medicines Partnership. Um, which is a multi-site effort to study kidney biopsies from patients with lupus nephritis, mostly by single cell RNA sequencing, to do exactly this, to try and look for the correlations between interstitial infiltrates, glomerular lesions, and what that means for the progression of kidney disease in patients with lupus nephritis. Very cool. Okay, with that, we can move to the next term. 
now that everybody is clearly, clearly uh, aware of what's lupus and what's lupus nephritis, uh, we can talk about what are follicular B cells and what are extra follicular B cells. It's uh, quite an interesting concept that most of our, a lot of our B cells like to re reside in this localized structure inside secondary lymphoid organs called the B cell follicles. And while there are B cells outside the follicles too, but I, I've, I th always think of the follicles as a home to B cells, where they come here, where they're relaxed, where they can do their stuff, where they can get activated much more easily. Uh, Deepak, how would, you, how would you differentiate follicular B cells and extra follicular B cells based on maybe their functions and what their relevance to immune system? Well, I think your description's a good one. Um, there's... Um most of what we think about is the follicular response, which is this really increasingly well-characterized but carefully organized um, set of interactions where you have within a follicle, the development of a germinal center, um, interactions between follicular helper cells and the B cells within the germinal center to try and re really drive a very efficient and optimal somatic hypermutation to generate B cells with high affinity antibody. And the B cells that are the product of that germinal center may become memory B cells, they may become plasmoblasts and develop into long-lived plasma cells. At the same time, um, in, in many conditions, especially in chronic autoimmune conditions, you see this development of an extra follicular B cell response. And um, people like Mark Shlomczyk have really highlighted the importance of these extra follicular responses um, in chronic autoimmune conditions like in lupus. Um, there, the idea is that it might be that the extra follicular response gives rise to um, a population of short-lived plasmoblasts, B cells that are sort of rapidly turned into plasmoblasts that get out and, and get into the circulation more quickly. And maybe this is a way that you can generate an early antibody response before the germinal center response has had time to sort of fully mature high-affinity B cells. So you can have this um, extra follicular response, activation of B cells in that response that turn into short-lived plasmoblasts. Perhaps they turn into CD11C positive B cells or age-associated B cells, but part of a, um, a, a part of a perhaps a sort of rapid early response. Yeah, there, there's a, this cool thing about extra follicular B cells. When I was first learning about germinal center reactions. I learned that there are these follicular dendritic cells inside the germinal center that have captured these antigen antibody complexes on their FC receptors. And my question that time was, well, if the antigen is the antibody producing cells, the B cells are getting trained here. From where did these early antibodies come from that are being captured by the follicular dendritic cells? And the answer to is it is mostly the extra follicular B cells that provide these early B cell responses. It's, it's more about compromising the quality of antibodies to get higher speed of antibody production. And with that, we have these special kind of extra follicular B cells that I have read. In, if you are a person who reads a lot of uh, autoimmunity papers, you would have seen these age-associated B cells. And the unique thing about these cells is they are found even in healthy patients. If, I mean, healthy people, not patients. So even healthy people have these B cells that accumulate in our bodies as the age progresses. And at least to my knowledge, we don't exactly know what is their function. Deepak, would you like to tell us something about what is their role possibly in our body? 
Yeah, well, I think you're right. It's not, it's not, um, it's not obvious what their role is yet. Um, they're clearly these these uh, age-associated B cells, or um, uh, there's a few different names for them. You know, either CD11C positive, TBET positive B cells, or age-associated B cells, uh, um, uh, sometimes referred to as double negative DN2 B cells. Um, uh, population of cells clearly expanded in in autoimmune disease so really very prominently expanded in lupus and actually if you if you look at the abnormalities in circulating b cells in the peripheral blood of patients with lupus this expansion of cd11c positive b cells is i think the most prominent abnormality in the circulating b cell population in lupus uh, they um Rachel Edinger's group has shown us that these B cells can produce the autoantibodies that you find in lupus. They can find anti-DNA and anti-RNA uh, complex antibodies that are produced by age-associated B cells. Um, so what's their function? It's possible one of their functions is to produce autoantibodies, at least in, in, in lupus or in autoimmunity. Uh, there's this sense that perhaps they're sort of um, predisposed to turn into plasmoblasts. They're kind of pre-plasmoblast that can rapidly turn into a, a plasmoblast population. Or um, perhaps they function as antigen presenting cells and maybe are picking up antigens and presenting them uh, maybe even out in the peripheral tissues where they may accumulate. Yeah. Well, there, there's one more thing that I want to add here. It's pretty, it's pretty cool stuff that our, our immune system does not completely remove autoreactive B cells. We tend to keep them around just in case there comes a pathogen that is somewhat mimicking our self tissues. And in that case, we might need those autoantibodies. And even for clearance of debris, our own cellular dead cells, we need these autoantibodies. So it's, it's a strange concept that we cannot completely get rid of autoimmunity. Autoimmunity is a part of a normal human being. Yeah, I agree with that. That, um, the immune, the immune, the set point for selection of B cells is is clearly such that you end up with autoreactive B cells in the circulation, in you know, in the system. They're not all deleted um, by by central tolerance, um, and and maybe that's because uh, if you were to delete all potentially autoreactive B cells um, uh, by central tolerance, then you would severely restrict your then your 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 um, uh, potential ability to make antibodies against against um, uh, uh, pathogens, um, or maybe there's some protective role of having some of these autoantibodies around. Uh, yeah. That that one's an interesting question. <laughs> okay, and now that we've talked about follicular B cells and extra follicular B cells, now we can talk about follicular T cells and extra follicular T cells. So before the, I read this paper, I would think every T cell that is not a follicular T cell is should be an extra follicular T cell, right? <laughs> because it's not inside the follicle. So the cool thing about follicular T cells is that they gain access, they get access to the follicle and specifically inside the germinal center through this, through this receptor called CXCR5, which is, I think of it like a key to a door that is normally locked for everybody else, but it's open for this particular cell so that it can go inside the germinal center and it can it can do its job. It can activate B cells, provide them survival signals and choose the best so that only the high affinity B cells may get out of there and become plasma cells. 
for extra follicular T cells, uh, Deepak, would you like to tell, especially because this paper is mostly about these extra follicular T cells? Yeah, sure. So, so I think um, your your description is right. So, uh, there has been this recognition over the past 15 years of um, a T cell population that accumulates in the follicles, and uh, because of their residence in the follicles, they were named follicular helper T cells. And these cells are these T cells are are critically important for helping to drive a B cell response. So, they have the uh, they have all of the tools that are needed to interact with B cells in the follicle to help um, provide help to the B cells through factors like CD40 ligand and production of IL-21, a key factor to help drive B cell maturation and differentiation into plasma cells. Um, they express CX05, which helps them accumulate in the follicles following this ligand CXCL13. And um, as we've appreciated the importance of T follicular helper cells or TFH cells in driving a B cell response and promoting a B cell response, um, we've come to think about TFH cells as the only B cell helpers, as you know, equating the idea of B cell help with TFH cells. Uh, and it turns out that there's 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 more to it than that. Um, and uh, we started to think about this as we were looking at. Um, uh, actually inflamed synovium from patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And they're just sort of broadly characterizing the T-cell phenotypes in rheumatoid arthritis synovium uh, by flow cytometry and by mass cytometry. And what came out of that was the recognition that there's this large population of CD4 T-cells in the synovium in rheumatoid arthritis that has a phenotype that looks sort of like TFH cells. So. They have a high expression of PD-1 and ICOS. Um, they express many of the factors that we associate with T follicular helper cells, like IL-21 and CXCL-13. And yet, they totally lack CXCR5, this sort of defining feature of T follicular helper cells. And instead, they express a set of chemokine receptors that looks um, that's, that are different chemokine receptors like CCR2 or CX3CR1 or CCR5, chemokine receptors that we generally think about as taking immune cells out to sites of peripheral inflammation. So the idea here was that this is a B cell helper T cell population that's abundant in the synovium and rheumatoid arthritis. About a quarter, it's about a quarter of the CD4 cells in seropositive rheumatoid arthritis samples. Um, they look like TFH cells and that they look like B cell helpers. And if you sort them out in vitro, you can show that they have some B cell helper function. And yet <clears throat> they lack CXCR5 and they express sort of a different migratory program, one that takes cells to peripheral tissue. So in in this context of recognizing T follicular helper cells, uh, we, we called these cells T peripheral helper cells with the idea that they're a peripherally homing B cell helper population. Um, and as we've gone looking for these cells in different autoimmune conditions, they turn out to be particularly prominently expanded in patients with lupus. And that's what this paper that we're talking about uh, sort of highlights. Um, but across, I think, work from, from many groups now, there's this appreciation that there are T cell populations that can help stimulate a B cell response, uh, despite the fact that they don't quite look like prototypical TFH cells. So that's this peripheral helper T cell population that we recognized in the synovium in rheumatoid arthritis and then here in lupus. There's a, um, 
a, a similar population of T cells that's been recognized by Virginia Pasquale's lab um, that they called TH10 cells with some similar features and uh, very prominent in pediatric lupus patients. Um, and, and Joe Kraft's lab had, had described this population of extrafollicular helper T cells uh, back in 2008 um, in a really nice work in, in lupus models, uh, primarily in the mouse, showing that there's an ICOS expressing IL-21 producing T cell population in these extrafollicular foci in the spleen. So, and there are other examples as well, but um, I think many examples to show that there are T cell populations that you can find uh, in different places that can produce factors important for helping B cells that can help stimulate a B cell response, even though they lack some of the key characteristic features of TFH cells. I feel bad for the undergraduate students who are learning immunology because I am a TA for an undergrad class and every time they ask me something, I would answer it like, yes, that is true, but there is an exception. And now I'm going to be using that same phrase when they talk to me about follicular T cells. Yeah, <laughs> not the only guys, not not the only ones helping B cells there. It, it's it's quite complicated to be an immunologist. That's anyway. right. You have to teach you have to teach the dogma first, and then and then introduce the caveats. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a lot of caveats there. <laughs> anyway. Uh, we have talked about germinal center reaction somewhat and the extra follicular and follicular T cells. And with that, I can finally explain my joke. So the reason extra follicular T cells could not say anything to the germinal center B cell is because they could not get inside the germinal center. And that is because they do not have CXCR5. So now you know it, that's your 10 seconds of time I did not waste. And with that, we can move to the last term that we'll go through. It's interleukin-21. And generally, we do not discuss about cytokines, but interleukin-21 is a very specific one here uh, in case of maturing B cells. And one cool thing about interleukin-21 that I know is that B cells receive it from typically follicular helper T cells. And uh, one cool molecule that is transcribed downstream of interleukin-21 is the AICDA or activation-induced cytidine deaminase that lets germinal center B cells go through somatic hypermutation. Uh, so, uh, Deepak, would you like to add anything apart from that? How is interleukin-21 required for B cells? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's that's right. So, in the absence of IL-21, um, the generation of uh, mature B cells and, and plasmablast is severely compromised in the mouse. So you know, this is this is an important factor for TFH cells and for other T cells to produce to stimulate a B cell response. One um, yeah, nuance to that is that uh, IL twenty one production is not limited to TFH cells, and it's not it's not necessarily limited to limited to TFH cells plus T peripheral helper cells and extra follicular B cell helpers. You can find IL twenty one production from a number of different T cell populations. And it, it probably acts on, it, it does act on other immune cells um, to, to facilitate other responses. So IL-21 can act on CD8 cells, CD8 cells and NK cells to help promote their cytotoxicity. So uh, I wouldn't just think about IL-21 connected to TFH cells and B cells. It's probably doing other things in, the, in, you know, in other contexts. You're right. TL for 17 cells also depend on IL-21 for... They, they. So I read this cool paper that they completely switched from their requirement of IL-2 to IL-21. So 
they just and IL-2 and IL-21 they do use a similar common gamma chain so maybe it's not that hard to switch their circuitry but yeah it's a pleiotropic cytokine does a lot of stuff and particularly important here in B cell activation and maturation with that we have uh, discussed most of the terms uh, let's talk about what this whole paper is based on in SLE patients, there is often a high autoantibody titer, specifically antibodies against nucleic acids, which is the DNA and RNA. Follicular helper T cells, they are thought to be the primary T cell populations that provide help to pathogenic B cells inside the follicles in secondary lymphoid organs. However, there is evidence that autoreactive T and B interaction may also take place outside the follicle. B cells activated through these uh, interactions can contribute to inflammation in tissues and such interactions require the presence of a unique type of T cell that is distinct from the typical T follicular helper cells associated with B cell, B cell help as they likely express a, diff a different set of chemokine receptors. One such type of T cell that can provide help to B cells is called the peripheral helper T cell or TPH as seen in certain rheumatoid arthritis patients. A unique thing about these TPH or peripheral helper T cells is that they do not express CXCR5, so they cannot gain entry into the germinal center. Instead, they can express other chemokine receptors as Deepak mentioned, CX3CR1, CCR5, and which allows them to traffic into other tissues, the peripheral tissues. So in this study, the authors wanted to evaluate the circulating T-cell populations in SLE patients. And when I talk, say circulating T-cell population, it's mostly in the peripheral blood because I don't even know if you... Can you take any other source of uh, cells from a patient who is not dead yet? Oh, definitely okay. you can. Um, what kind of cells, uh, samples so, can you take? Uh, well, you can... I mean, you, you, have, you have to ask permission. Uh, you know, you... you <laughs> But we're, we're um, uh, there, there, there are many programs that can send patients for the collection of, of other tissue samples by biopsy. The most common is the skin. So you can biopsy oh. the skin in patients with lupus and other autoimmune diseases, psoriasis, dermatomyositis, and study you know what's in the skin. Um, you can biopsy other tissues. Uh, so the um, uh, there's been a large effort to, to collect kidney biopsies from patients with lupus nephritis and, and to really study them, you know, for research. Uh, this is this is um, large, largely done in the U.S. by through this Accelerating Medicines Partnership Program that I mentioned, where um, multiple sites around the country have have been enrolling patients, obtaining consent from the patients, explaining what the study is about. And um, for a patient who's undergoing a kidney biopsy for the evaluation of, of lupus nephritis, um, if the patient consents, then an additional sample, an additional core biopsy can be taken that's specifically for research. And then those samples can be processed and analyzed by uh, primarily by single cell RNA sequencing to see, you know, what's in there. Um, but it's possible to collect this way kidney biopsies, skin biopsies. In, in rheumatoid arthritis patients, there are programs to collect synovial tissue biopsies for research. Um, and there's a, there's a number of examples like this, so you can. It's hard, you know. It, it's hard. It takes it takes a research infrastructure, but it can be done. So if you need a higher sample size, would you say that based on convenience, it's easier to get peripheral blood out of patients? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's why most of these studies are done with blood. Okay. And there, just to mention, you know, there, there are some autoimmune diseases that are, are um, much more informative uh, to study PBMCs than others. So, you know, as we've been comparing the T-cell phenotypes in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, you can see these very prominent abnormalities in circulating T-cell populations and B-cell populations in patients with lupus. They're really quite striking. Um, in contrast, in rheumatoid arthritis patients, the circulating phenotypes are pretty normal. You can find some things that are different. You can find an expansion of T4 helper cells in RA patients, um, but it's it's more subtle. The effect sizes are smaller, um, and certainly nowhere near what you see in lupus. Okay. I feel like I sometimes do this podcast for my own selfish reasons because I get to learn a lot by talking to <laughs> like brilliant people. It's quite a good day for me. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so the authors, they wanted to look at circulating T-cell populations in SLE patients using a higher dimension technique, which is mass cytometry here, to compare how their T-cells look compared to healthy controls and also rheumatoid arthritis patients as another in autoimmune disease, but not lupus. Um, just in brief, Deepak, can you tell us what's different about mass cytometry compared to flow cytometry in terms of the output you get? Sure. So the, the principle is the same. In both cases, you have a, a cell suspension, you incubate it with a, a cocktail of antibodies that are uniquely tagged. And in flow cytometry, the antibodies are tagged with a floor, so such that each marker has a unique floor. In mass cytometry, it's the same idea. It's just that each antibody is now tagged with a heavy metal. So you have your anti-CD19 tagged with one metal, your anti-CD20 tagged with another metal. Um, those cells then after the staining process go through, they essentially go through a flow cell, but they then are passed through a mass spec as opposed to passing through a, a laser like you have in a flow cytometer. The mass spec uh, you know, has this argon torch, it vaporizes the cells. It's supposed to be like the temperature of the sun. And uh, that ion cloud then passes through the mass spec and the mass spec will read out the different heavy metals that come through for each cell. So it gives you a level of expression of each of the markers based on how much of the heavy metal tag was detected for each of the antibodies you used in the panel. And the advantage of this is that you can, you can resolve the signals by mass spec much more easily than, than fluorescent signals. So you can detect 40, 45, maybe 50 markers uh, simultaneously. So it's, it's kind of like 50 parameter flow cytometry. Pretty cool. Let's go to the results. The first question that the authors were asking is, what is the T-cell phenotype in lupus nephritis patients? The, the authors used mass cytometry data from healthy controls and lupus nephritis patients. Just for the sake of everyone's sanity, I will omit the specifics of the data analysis <laughs> and just mention that the authors found a population of PD-1 high CXCR5 negative T-cells expanded in SLE patients with respect to the controls. The authors also saw that the population was uh, expanded much more even than, uh, than even rheumatoid arthritis patients. These cells also co-expressed ICOS um, and HLADR, which is a variant of MHC class 2. And interestingly, they resembled the peripheral helper cell populations seen in rheumatoid arthritis synovium that are known to provide help to B cells. Since there's a lot of markers we are throwing out there, 
let's have a brief discussion about this. So we have already uh, discussed about CXCR5 being a chemokine receptor that allows these cells to go inside. So these cells were not expressing CXCR5, so probably not follicular helper T cells. On the other hand, they're expressing PD-1. And this was from an old podcast episode that we did. Thanks to Eugenio who sent us this paper uh, that showed that higher T-cell inter T-cell antigen interactions or prolonged interaction or high affinity interactions results in T-cells that have a lot more PD-1 expression. So maybe you could say that these uh, these T-cells, they did have a higher interaction with their antigen and MHC when they were activated. That's one of the things PD-1 does, but I mean, that's one of the ways how it's upregulated, but the more, mostly the function that PD-1 is associated with is an inhibitory function, right? So that makes the cell more vulnerable to, to being turned down later on. Is there another significance of PD-1 in these cells that I'm missing? Well, it ends up being a, um, uh, it ends up being, so everything you said about PD-1 is right. Uh, uh, but it also ends up being a, a marker, especially at these very high expression levels, a reasonable marker of TFH cells. So, um, you know, if you're looking at, for example, um, flow cytometry of tonsil, where there's a large population of germinal center TFH cells, the highest expression of PD-1 that you see is on the CXCR5 high PD-1 high germinal center TFH cells that, that, that um, end up as this discrete, very bright, clear population out of the tonsil. And essentially all of the cells, all of the CD4 cells with very high expression of PD-1 in a tonsil sample are germinal center TFH cells. So at the same time, um, uh, when we were looking at rheumatoid arthritis synovial samples there, you could see this T cell population with a, with a distinctly high expression of PD-1, sort of equally high to what you see on germinal center TFH cells that form their own sort of contour by flow cytometry, their own sort of distinct population of cells with very high PD-1 expression. And that turns out to be the T peripheral helper cell population that we we're talking about in the synovium, sort of TFH-like population, but with CXCR5 totally lacking. Um, when we're looking at cells in peripheral blood, the flow cytometry characteristics look a little different. You know, the, you don't see um, a large population of cells with this like bright PD-1 expression, like you see in the tonsil or like you see in rheumatoid synovium, um, it's a much smaller population <laughs> of cells. It's harder to distinguish from the cells with sort of intermediate PD-1 expression. And yet, if you sort out those cells with very high expression of PD-1, even out of PBMC samples, um, those cells are the cells that that carry these TFH-like features. They're, they're the cells uh, also with the highest expression of ICOS, with the highest expression of IL-21 and CXCL-13. So while it's not, a, it's not a terribly satisfying specific marker, these cells with very high expression of PD-1 are highly enriched in, in B-cell helper features. I think that's, that's we're sort of recognizing that that enriches for, for TFH and TPH cells, especially in these autoimmune patient samples. Cool. And another marker we just talked about is ICOS that these cells were expressing. And ICOS is another co-stimulatory molecule like CD28. It receives the ICOS ligand from the B cell and probably helps in the co-stimulation effect like CD28. But specific, this is mostly specific to these B cell helper T cells. And in the end, we 
come to HLADR? And I had a very specific question about T cells upregulating MHC class two. What could be the significance of this? Yeah, so this is a question that people people who focus on mouse T cells ask this question all the time, uh, um, <laughs> because uh, it doesn't it doesn't really happen it doesn't happen with mouse T cells, but it's it's um, it's been recognized um, as a sort of activation response in human T cells for for decades and decades. It was one of the early it was one of the relatively early um, features that was noted uh, on activated human T cells. So. Uh, if you stimulate T cells with anti-CD3 and anti-CD28 in vitro, after a couple of days, they'll turn on um, expression of MHC molecules. They do it based on, they're driven by expre initial expression of, of C2TA, the transcription factor turns on these molecules. Um, why do human T cells express MHC class two? Remains an open question. So, you know, a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that they express MHC molecules to present antigens. They, you know, use it to present antigens just as other antigen presenting cells do. Um, another possibility is that maybe they're using it uh, to present antigens, but they do so in more of a regulatory way, um, you know, inducing tolerance or energy as opposed to activation. Um, or maybe they express MHC molecules uh, as ligands for other receptors, you know, binding lag three or binding some something else. Uh, really you know hasn't hasn't been teased apart carefully but um you know it's it's a, a high, highly character, characteristic feature of activated t-cells i have this crazy idea what if they just capture this from an antigen presenting cell like like tear it apart from their membrane and show it on their own That'd it could be, cool be. Check it. yeah that could happen but but in this for but you can see this response at the mrna level too um, mm. oh. You can see that T cells, T cells express express the genes for MHC molecules, um, and it's driven, you know, it's driven by the action of this transcription factor C2TA. So they might still sum off off of the surface of APCs, but they can express it themselves too. Okay, that's the, that does shoot down my idea. So not completely true for me, <laughs> because because basophils do that. This thing called trogocytosis. They can grab MHC2 from other antigen presenting cells. Very cool stuff, but also mean. For other cells <laughs> anyway so we've got this population that is upregulated in sle patients the next question the authors asked was were these peripheral helper t cells also capable of providing help to b cells to answer this they co-cultured sorted peripheral helper t cells from the blood of patients with b cells and they saw a robust plasma blast differentiation this finding confirms that these cxcr5 negative pd1 high t cells were capable of providing help to B cells. The authors analyzed the defollicular helper populations and found that these the peripheral helper T cells outnumbered the follicular helpers in the blood of SLE patients by almost four times. And to this, I know you guys did mention in the paper that it's probably because follicular helper cells like to be in the follicles rather than in the blood. So it could be that. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, so in the in the peripheral blood, um, we could see this expansion of a, a PD1 high ICOS positive CXCR5 negative T cell population. This is the peripheral helper cell population, and you know, what's what's interesting about this is that this is a population of cells that can help drive a B cell response, even though they lack CXCR5. And so we mostly look past them when we're looking for B cell helpers, which are focused on TFH cells. Um, 
so we made the point that that the frequency of these cells, PD1 high, CXCR5 negative, TPH cells, is higher than the frequency of TFH cells in the circulation. You know, it sort of implies that perhaps they're they're important, um, but it's not. It's not. You know, doesn't necessarily mean that. In that, you know, if TFH cells are mostly mostly sitting in secondary lymphoid organs, mostly sitting in the follicles doing their job there, you may not quantify them so well in the circulation. So it's, you know, it's not, it's, I wouldn't take this to mean that TFH cells are not important in lupus mm-hmm. um, or that necessarily that TPH cells are more important. You know, those things need to be dissected sort of experimentally. Um, but, okay. but, but, you know, as you look at the phenotypes of T cells in the blood of patients with lupus, this expansion of PD-1 high CXCR5 negative TPH cells, that's the most prominent abnormality you can find, at least in the CD4s. But it's really, okay. um, you know, amongst the abnormalities of CD4 T cells, this is the one that stands out as most dramatic, at least in our hands. So what are you saying? This this could be a kind of biomarker to separate out how the blood of SLE patients may look like? Absolutely. The, okay. Absolutely. I'm really excited about that idea. You know. Um, the frequency of these cells in patients with lupus is pretty abnormal, and it's quite different from what you see in healthy controls. So I really want to test this idea, you know, can we use this clinically? You know, can we measure TPH frequencies in patients that we see in clinic to ask, to help ask how active is the immune response, adaptive immune response in this patient with lupus? Or when we see a patient in clinic with a question of lupus, does this patient have lupus or not? Um, wouldn't it be useful to measure the TPH frequency? And um, if it were very high, it, it would, you know, it would raise your suspicion that there's an immune response that's going on in this patient that's consistent with what you see in lupus. I really, I'd really like to develop this because uh, it just, it seems like it should work. Yeah, it's a cool idea. The, ne- the next question in this, in this paper is, the authors wanted to evaluate the relationship between the peripheral helper T cells and clinical features in the patients. Clinicians use a measure of SLE called SLEDAI. It is made up of several factors combined into a single score that can tell us about the severity of the disease. And the authors saw that the TPH frequency significantly and positively correlated with SLEDAI much better than T follicular helpers did. Uh, Deepak, first, just a quick comment from you. Is SLEDI the the golden standard for measuring lupus severity? Oh gosh, you're gonna get me in trouble if um, if the loop, anyone from the lupus community is listening to this. Um, there there are different disease activity metrics in lupus. They all have their strengths and their um, weaknesses. Uh, the sleet eye here is a, is a common one that's used to assess disease activity in a patient with lupus. Um, so what we're doing here is to try and build a correlative case, you know, based on these human descriptive analyses about the potential pathogenicity of a cell population. So, you know, the way that you make that case is first that the cells are highly expanded in patients with the disease versus patients who don't have the disease as a starting observation high frequency of tph cells in lupus patients um second that it correlates with the extent of disease or the severity of disease so in patients with the most active lupus you see the highest frequencies of tph cells 
and in patients with less active disease or who have essentially quiet disease, that the frequencies are lower. Uh, supports the idea that the cells are expanded when the disease is active and they, they get reduced when the disease is, is less active. This is a sort of cross-sectional view. We're just taking a set of patients and asking about the correlation between disease activity and TPH frequency. Um, in other cases, and what we, we haven't done it yet in lupus, but we've done in rheumatoid arthritis, is to ask in individual patients, if you measure clinical disease activity versus the frequency of TPH cells, do they track together? So in patients with active disease who are treated with a new medicine, uh, if they get better clinically, does the frequency of TPH cells also go down? And we've seen that in rheumatoid arthritis patients where we've had the chance to study these patients sort of over a longer period of time. We're doing it now with lupus. I think it's very likely that, that we'll see these associations in individual patients over time, but it's it's yet to be done. Okay. Well, I guess that, that brings, you know, a good question is like, where do these particularly come from, where they come about and what triggers TPHs to, you know, increase in their population? Yeah, I agree. So where, I, I, I don't, so where, where do they come from? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, so, you know, one possibility is that they're coming from TFH cells in germinal centers that, you know, um, you can generate a, a TFH response that's going on in secondary lymphoids in germinal centers. And, uh, it, it, and um, perhaps some of those TFH cells will shift to their phenotype and they downregulate CX05 and they upregulate a different migratory program and they go out to the peripheral tissues and that's when they look like TPH cells. Um, uh, that's possible. Uh, an alternative is that you can generate TPH cells um, that have never been a TFH cell. You can you know, take a naive T cell or a TH1 cell that may um, accumulate this set of B cell helper functions for whatever reason. And maybe it's Maybe it's their interaction with an extra follicular B cell in an extra follicular uh, focus, um, or maybe it's you know interactions out in a peripheral tissue. Uh, these these we don't know yet. Those are tough experiments to do in humans. I think you have to be able to model it in the mouse to ask that question. Um, but 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 I agree. You know we're, we're going to want to know where the cells come from. Do we know if these cells are PCL6 dependent? Yeah. So. Um, uh, yeah, BCL6 is a good question, right? So BCL6, we think of as the master regulator of T follicular helper cells. And in some ways, you know, we've come to think about um, BCL6 as a controller of like all things B cell help, uh, but but it's not, that's not quite right. So um, the primary example of the, 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 the um, discrepancy there to me is that IL-21 production is not controlled by BCL6. So you need BCL6 to maintain a circulating TFH, maintain a TFH population in the mouse. You know, the BCL6 deficient uh, mice cannot, cannot generate and sustain a TFH population. But BCL6 deficient T cells can still make plenty of IL-21. They make IL-21 at normal levels. And the same is true in um, the, the same sort of independence of of IL-21 from BCL-6 is seen in human T cells in that Shane Crotty had demonstrated that if you overexpress BCL-6 in human CD4 T cells from tonsil, it has no effect on IL-21 production. And um, uh, though, 
Um, though it's not published, um, we've also observed that if you delete IL-21 by CRISPR in human CD4 T-cells, uh, that also um, has no effect on the T-cell's ability to make IL-21. So, so, uh, so you can have an IL-21 producing, uh, I think, B-cell helper T-cell population that doesn't, doesn't rely on B-cell 6. And here, when we were looking at synovial, synovial T-cells, synovial TPH cells, um, one of the early surprises about that cell population, PD-1 high, ICOS expressing, IL-21 producing T-cell population, those cells have uh, quite a low expression of BCL6, nowhere near the levels that you see in TFH cells. Um, and they actually have a high expression of BLIMP1, the counter-regulator to BCL6, or sort of opposing factor to BCL6. So it's kind of a surprise that you could find a B cell helper population that makes IL-21, um, but doesn't have a high expression of BCL-6 and actually has a higher expression of BLIMP1, the counter receptor, counter regulator. Um, but that's what TPH cells look like. So they, they don't, they don't seem, they don't seem to need a high level of BCL-6. Do they need any BCL-6? We haven't proven yet. So, um, you know, it's possible that they need some intermediate or low level of BCL6 to to do their job or to develop. Uh, that part that part's not not clear yet. Makes me want to doubt how Thank strong, you. like as like FoxP3 is considered the soul of the Treg. Maybe BCL6 is not all of it that's required for B cell help. <clears throat> Interesting. It's, Eugenio, do it, you have anything else? Okay. I'm just gonna say I don't I don't want to no, I don't want to under you know undermine B cell six too much. I mean it's clearly it's clearly essential for TFH cells and it's yeah. it's an important factor for regulating and 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 promoting much of the B cell helper program. Um, it just doesn't seem to be you know essential at high levels for all B cell helpers, and certainly not for all twenty one. All right, so coming back to the results. Uh, the authors also saw that the patients who were positive for ANA, which is anti-nucleic acid antibodies, they had m way more, 2.8 times more T follicular helper cells, I mean T peripheral helper cells than those who were negative for ANA. The authors also looked at an independent cohort for SLE patients to validate their finding. And yes, they also found that, uh, they found expanded T peripheral helper cells in these new cohort of patients so yeah this is quite nice so you're, you're in this one you're making a correlation or not exactly a correlation but you're saying that ANA increased ANA might also have something to do with your increased deep peripheral helper cells yeah I just want to uh, nuance that a little bit so mm -hmm. um, what we're what, what we're analyzing here is the relationship with the with the presence of anti double-stranded DNA antibodies which is a, a little more, it is a large component of the ANA, but it's a little more specific than the ANA. So um, essentially, almost all patients with lupus have have a positive ANA, a positive anti-nuclear antibody. Um, and the titers of the ANA are not that useful clinically. They tend not to fluctuate in a sort of reproducible way. Um, one of the components of an ANA, one autoantibody that can give you an, an anti-nuclear antibody pattern is an anti-double-stranded DNA antibody. 
So that's you know a little bit more, much more specific for lupus. And the double-stranded DNA titers, anti-double-stranded DNA antibody titers, tend to fluctuate with disease activity. So they tend to go up when patients flare, and they tend to come down when patients respond well. So what we were trying to ask is: Is there a relationship between the frequency of TPH cells and the frequency and the, and the titer, or the level of the anti-double-stranded DNA antibody? And there. Um, for some technical reasons about the antibodies being measured at different for different sites, the way that we asked the question was about whether there are differences in the TPH frequencies in patients that have the detectable double-stranded DNA antibody level at the time when we're measuring it um, versus the patients that don't have a positive double-stranded DNA antibody at that time. And and what you can see is that the patients who have a detectable double-stranded DNA antibody in their circulation. Those patients have much higher frequencies of TPH cells than than the patients who are double-stranded DNA antibody negative, uh, and so that and I think it fits with the idea that this is a B cell helper population. It's associated with you know the level of uh, the, an autoantibody that goes up and down you know with disease activity. Okay. So yes, I think uh, we can move on to really this interesting data that. Okay, so now we found that these uh, peripheral helper T cells are in the blood, but what happened with the kidneys? So uh, the question here is if the uh, peripheral helper T cells infiltrate kidneys of patients with lupus. So to evaluate if peripheral helper T cells infiltrate kidneys of patients with lupus, the authors analyzed kidney biopsies from tissue from patients, sorry. So they took these uh, cryopreserved kidney biopsies and where they, they were analyzed, and it was found that the PD-1 high C4 T cells compromise more than 5% of the total hematopoietic cells in the kidneys of lupus patients. Importantly to consider here is that this population was absent in kidneys of healthy individuals. So this is really, really, really crucial and interesting data. And to further analyze, further analysis indicates a positive correlation between PD-1 high C4 T cells and the frequency of B cells. So this correlation is consistent with the B helper function of this in lupus nephritis kidneys. So this is really, really interesting data here. And I wanted to... the, ne the next uh, obvious question would be, what is the, what is the phenotype and function of these, uh, 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 of these peripheral helper T cells in, in patients of lupus? So uh, to further characterize the phenotype of these cells, the authors analyzed blood samples of healthy individuals, rheumatoid arthritis patients, and lupus patients. The authors compared PD-1 negative T cells versus, uh, versus uh, PD-1 high T cells or, or peripheral helper T cells. The expression of ICOS, HCL, ADR, TBET, and CD25 and CD127 was increased in the peripheral helper populations independently of the uh, analyzed group. So it seems that these uh, 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 markers are expressed uh, in those cells independently of a healthy or, or, or any of the pathological conditions here. So one thing to uh, important to notice here is that there were three markers that were differentially expressed in lupus patients over controls, and this is PD-1, CCR2, and CXCR3. Being PD-1 expression increased, and CCR2 and CXCR3 decreased in T-follicular helper cells of uh, 
of the uh, peripheral herpes cells of lupus patients compared with controls. Um, so uh, I was wondering here, doctor, if you have any clue about this uh, expression of, of, of reduced expression of CCR2 and CXCR3 in, in, in these cells. Yeah, it's a good question. So that's a, um, I think the short answer is we don't know. Um, I, I think it's sort of surprising that you, we see this um, reduced expression of these two chemokine receptors on the cells from patients with lupus. It's not, it's actually not specific to the TPH population. So the TPH cells from lupus patients tend to have a lower expression of CCR2 and CXCR3 compared to TPH cells from controls. Uh, the same is true of the, the broader circulating T cells. So if you look at the total memory CD4 T cells from patients with lupus compared to the controls, there also you see this reduced expression of CCR2 and CXCR3. Um, I think it's probably not a decrease in the frequency of the cells that express the receptor, but actually a, just a lower expression of, of, the, of the receptor on the surface. Um, why is that? I don't, I don't know. Don't have a good answer yet. I wanted to ask something before. Say when you found that there were more PD-1 high and CD4 positive T cells, just to confirm, in this panel, since you're using some kind of staining, you could not differentiate between peripheral helper and follicular T cells because you could not use CXCR5 for staining. So all you could see was there were PD-1 high helper T cells. Now they could be follicular or not follicular, right? In the kidney, that's right. In the so kidneys. In the, in the peripheral blood, it's it's clear. Where there's there's mm -hmm. plenty of chemokine receptors in the mass cytometry panel to make these distinctions. Um, in the kidney, what we're using is flow cytometry data that was generated as we were processing research kidney biopsies, what we were talking about before, you know, collecting kidney biopsies for research. Um, uh, as in the Accelerating Medicines Partnership, these kidney biopsies were collected from multiple sites around the country. They were cryopreserved and then sent to Brigham and Women's Hospital in phase one of the, of the AMP effort. And we would thaw them out, dissociate them into single cell suspensions, stain them with a flow cytometry panel, and then sort out the leukocytes uh, as single cells into 384 well plates for plate-based single cell RNA sequencing. So we generated flow cytometry data on these kidney biopsies as we were doing the processing. And we're using that data to then ask about these um, frequencies of PD-1 high cells. We had PD-1 in the flow cytometry panel, but we didn't have CXCR5 or CCR2 or you know other chemokine receptors. So it's totally right. So all we can say about that is that there's a high frequency of PD-1 high CD4 T cells from the flow cytometry data. It's not definitive whether they're TPH or TFH, and you know that my hunch is that they're going to be TPH cells, but it, need, it still needs to be evaluated. Okay, so uh, as T follicular helper cells and peripheral helper cells are two populations increased in lupus pathogenesis, the authors compared the phenotype of these two populations in lupus patients. The authors found difference in six proteins. There was higher expression of TBET, CCR2, CD5, CD57, and GRANSM-B, and lower expression of CCR7 and CD27 on TPH cells compared with follicular helper cells in, in lupus patients. It's important to notice that the phenotype of these cells are similar to the ones found in the rheumatoid, rheumatoid, of the rheumatoid arthritis patients and suggest that they represent the same T-cell population. By further analyzing TPH cells of lupus patients, the authors found also increased expression, uh, increased expression of cytokines and 
chemokines like IL-21, interferon gamma, and CXCL-30. Um, just uh, finally here at uh, this part, the authors also found a nice correlation between the presence of TPH, plasma blast cells, and H-associated B cells, the ones that uh, Jake introduced us at the beginning and impatient with lupus. This observation gives the authors the hint of the possible role of functionality of lupus in lupus patients, which might be activating B cells in the tissue. I have this particular question. Granzyme B in CD4 positive T cells. I, I just wonder what might be the role. Is it, hmm, are, the, are they killing or is, is there another function of granzyme B? Don't you have granzyme B in Tregs? Yes. Oh yeah. They They're CD4 positive. positive. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now it's tolerate. <laughs> it makes it, it made us wonder about this too. You know, you can you can see some cytotoxic features in in these cells, and there are you can also find cytotoxic CD4 T cells that you know have a lot of similarity with cytotoxic CD8s. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a, we had the same reaction. Like, huh? It's curious. <laughs> I wanted to bring up CXCL13 here because this is the ligand for CXCL5. And it's interesting that the cell that is receiving the, that could be receiving CXCL13 is also making CXCL13. It's, it's, it's like, it's like an auto loop. Like you're chasing yourself, <laughs> right? That's what I'm imagining. If you, if you are the one that's producing the same ligand that you're, you are receiving for a chemokine specifically. Yeah, so this is really this is really I think uh, a topic that that we should be paying attention to. I'm 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 totally enamored with this question about CXCL13. So um, we don't usually think about T cells making chemokines that that often. Um, you know, we think about the stroma or uh, other cell types producing chemokines that will recruit T cells. Um, in humans and primates, T cells are the primary source of CXCL13. So if you look in lymph nodes, Shane Crowdy has shown us that if you look in lymph nodes in humans or primates, that the major source of CXCL13 are the TFH cells. And, and just as you're saying, they make CXCL13 and presumably they're recruiting CXCL5 expressing B cells as well as CXCL5 expressing TFH cells. Um, in the synovium in rheumatoid arthritis, the only cells that are making CXCL13 are the TPH cells. It's not coming from the macrophages or the fibroblasts or the B cells. It's only coming from the TPH population. Uh, so I like this idea that you have a TPH cell population that migrates into an inflamed tissue, like it migrates into the synovium in rheumatoid arthritis or the kidney in lupus. It gets activated there after it's seeing antigen. And as part of its function, it produces CXCL13 to then recruit B cells into this inflamed peripheral site. So you have a TPH cell that goes into the synovium, it makes CXCL13, and that's the impetus to then bring in B cells into this inflamed tissue. And maybe this is the, this is the beginning. This is how you start to nucleate what ultimately might become a lymphoid aggregate or an ectopic lymphoid structure. This is the initial um, signal that would help bring a B cell in. Difficult to model this in the mouse because the mouse T cells don't make CXL13, so it's got to work a little bit differently. And mice have CXL13; it's just it's produced by the stroma, it's produced by FTCs, 
it doesn't come from the T cells. Really interesting stuff. Neat. Well, cool. Now we're progressing onto the last figure, which I think is the nice little little bow on top of this. You've been investigating, you know, all the correlation between all these different markers in the disease, and now uh, going to have the more translational benefit that you're going to be investigating, right? So um, the question now is, how particularly do uh, I guess the hypothesis was that T uh, peripheral helper cells are activating B cells. So the question is how, right? So um, you guys had previously shown that T, uh, T peripheral helper cells can help induce B cell activation, and this depended on IL-21. We've been talking about IL-21 this whole time, right? Um, but there's also another group that was saying, you know, maybe there's the same, same subset that lacks CXCR5 that can help it using IL-10 and not necessarily IL-21. So you guys tested the induction of plasma blasts um, while also using uh, antibodies against either IL-21 or IL-10 and to see the blockade of which uh, would promote the most uh, production of plasma blasts. So uh, your group found that upon uh, blockade of IL-21, then there were there was fewer induction into plasma blasts. To understand what role IL-21 was playing in the uh, mechanism through which this was occurring, uh, they wanted to look at the transcription factors that may be controlling IL-21. Um, and so we've been talking also about differences between humans and mice, right? <laughs> and uh, you mentioned the IL the IL-21 production mechanism differs between mice and humans. But through all, all the collection of data and the rest of this paper, notice that uh, production of MAF, the transcription factor MAF, was upregulated in T peripheral helper cells. So to understand the role of MAF in producing IL-21 and also eliciting these activated B cell phenotypes, um, use CRISPR-Cas9 to delete MAF in primary CD4 positive T cells and look at IL-21 uh, RNA coming off with a qPCR or something, I imagine, and uh, yep. found that uh, by deleting MAF in these cells, uh, the B cells, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the uh, T peripheral helper cells uh, secreted less IL-21, or at least were expressing less IL-21, but they were also expressing less IL-10 because MAF also controls production of IL-10. And furthermore, uh, the T T peripheral helper cells that were lacking MAP uh, were not able to induce B cells into plasmablasts quite as much as a control. So therefore, uh, with all of these experiments, this demonstrates that um, T peripheral helper cells activate B cells through IL-21 and the transcription factor MAP. Does that all, all sound good to you? <laughs> yeah, perfect. I thought that was great. I mean, I think this is a really a kind of a neat experiment that um, we took T peripheral helper cells sorted out of PBMCs from patients with lupus. So this is a pathologically expanded T cell population that we're collecting from patients who have an active autoimmune disease. And um, using uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 electroporation method that Alex Marson developed, um, we can delete a transcription factor in these primary human T cells from a patient with lupus and then ask about whether it changes the function of the cells. And um, in this case, you know, we delete, we either delete CD8 as a control or we delete MAF as the factor of interest. 
And when we delete math, we can show that those cells make less IL-21 and less IL-10, and that they're less able to, to drive a plasmoblast response in vitro. So um, it, it seems to me that, you know, this is, uh, so for one, I think it's kind of cool to be able to take cells from a patient, manipulate them, and, and essentially, you know, modulate their effector functions. Um, and here, uh, I think it sort of highlights the, the relevance of math as a, as a factor in, in B cell helper functions. So this is a transcription factor that's highly expressed in both TFH and TPH cells. Uh, I think it's going to be relevant for IL-21 production sort of broadly. And, um, you know, if the, if the goal is to figure out ways to, to disrupt or interfere with IL-21 production, um, this is one way to go about it. I don't know how specific it's going to be. I don't know what the you know consequences of disrupting math and other cell types is going to be, but um, but but the, I think there's a direct line between math and IL-21. More broadly, I think this is kind of a neat thing to be able to do: get cells from a patient, manipulate them in different ways, and ask how you can. What are the factors that are relevant for controlling one function versus another? Yeah. For this transcription factor math, I'll be honest, I heard about it for the first time when I was reading your paper. What is it typically associated apart from uh, before you knew that this was b uh, acting for B cell helper functions? Yeah, so math had, uh, has, was initially recognized as a factor that, that was expressed in Th2 cells, but not Th1 cells and has roles in, in the function of Th2 cells. Um, it has it's been recognized as a factor um, that might be relevant in regulatory T cells, might be relevant for the production of IL-21, IL-10, um, and, and also has been recognized as a factor that's highly expressed in TFH cells. And actually, Shane Crotty's group had published this really nice work several years ago, um, showing just as they had overexpressed BCL6 and shown no effect on the on human T cell production of IL-21. In the same paper, they overexpress math, and they show that increasing the expression of math will increase the t will increase T cell production of IL twenty one. So, um, the math has been on on the table as a relevant factor for TFH cells. Um, just struck us as relevant here as we, uh, seeing it highly expressed in both of these cell populations, um, and and the the then the ability to sort of manipulate these factors one by one and ask. Which, which transcription factor is relevant for IL-21? Which transcription factor is relevant for CXCL13 or CD40 ligand or other factors, IL-10, other factors relevant for TFH cells? I think this is gonna be an interesting um, set of tools to take apart the different pathways. Do you know if mice make math? Yes, yes, okay. definitely. Okay, pretty cool. That's about sums up the paper. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Eugenio, do you wanna take up the discussion? Yes, sure. Uh, uh, I will uh, end up the uh, start the discussion by uh, we have seen that the importance of these TPHC cells in uh, lupus uh, pathogenesis. And I want to ask you, Doctor, uh, what is the next step for for this uh, this study? Are we are, are we planning to to deplete this uh, population or deplete the HSTB cells for controlling pathogenesis? Yeah, I think uh, great. So I think three three next steps to me. Uh, number one is demonstrate the presence of TPH cells in the mouse, and then do exactly the experiment you're asking, which is deplete TPH cells and ask, can you reduce some of the pathologic T cell B cell response in lupus models? So we're we're working on that. Number two, uh, can you use 
TPH cells as a biomarker in lupus, as we were talking about, can you track these cells to help you help you detect immune activation in lupus or other autoimmune conditions? And number three, uh, a better understanding of the regulation of the effector functions of TPH cells. And and really the one uh, the the one that we're going after is CXL13. Um, you know what regulates CXL13? Uh, we know very little about that. What transcription factors are relevant for CXL13 production? We have no idea. You know, I think this this part will be interesting. And and um, it seems clear so far that the regulation of IL-21 and the regulation of CXL13 are going to be distinct. They're going to be driven by different pathways. So we want to be able to dissect those. Okay. Uh, I, ha I had this question uh, about ABCs, the age-associated B cells. And there was a recent paper that the double negative B cells, these are extra follicular B cells, they look very similar to ABCs. And these cells are known to be highly responsive to IL-21, interferon gamma, and TLR7. They express a lot of TBET. And there was a paper in 2019, I'm, I cannot remember the name, but they showed that they were epigenetically poised to express high amounts of TBET. And they were they were making a lot of autoantibodies too. So do you think that this might be a specific cell population that the peripheral helper cells are catering to? Yeah, I think so. So I think the work you're referring to is in Yaki Sanz's work, um, looking at uh, DN2 cells, high expression of uh, Tibet, um, uh, you know, uh, low expression of IL-21, high expression of CD11C, induced by IL-21 interferon gamma TLR ligands. Mm -hmm. I think that, that it's it's these are highly you know related populations, and they have, the, the the themes seem consistent. Um, one of the quirks, you know, interesting things that, that that showed up in the paper that we published that we're talking about is that there's this nice positive correlation between TPH cells and CD11C positive B cells across lupus patients and RA patients. And and really almost no correlation between TFH cells and ABCs in the same patient samples. So um, it does, I think, you know, raise the possibility that there's some unique interaction between TPH cells and age-associated B cells in these patients. And we don't know, you know, it could be that ABCs are sort of functioning, functioning as an APC and are particularly good at inducing T cells to become TPH cells. It could be that TPH cells are particularly good at driving B cells to differentiate into APCs, you know, one direction or the other. Um, we're working on some of that sort of modeling it in vitro, but, um, but but I think there is, you know, this interesting possibility that these two cell populations reflect some common pathway of maybe it's, you know, extra follicular or peripheral, you know, T cell, B cell interactions. Uh, perhaps it sort of highlights the um, two common pathways or two related pathways that are going on outside of the secondary lymphoid or outside of the follicle or outside of the germinal center. Super cool stuff. I, I, can't, I can't wait to get the answers to this <laughs> in a future publication, probably. Yeah. Well, cool. Are we are we ready to wrap it up, guys? Ready to hit the summary? Let's do it. All right. So if you mm -hmm. weren't paying attention this whole time, we're going to tell you what we learned from this paper. So we learned that in SLE and lupus nephritis, you find this uh, particular helper T population called peripheral helper T cells. Um, these can help B cells activate and uh, it's correlated with the severity of their condition. Uh, 
with uh, SLE patients. These cells are able to infiltrate into the kidneys of lupus nephritis patients and express many markers that suggest they contribute to uh, inflammation. And we talked about many of these special markers, uh, uh, especially like PD-1 and ICOS, all that. So the patients found, uh, the authors found that this subset of T helper cells activates B cells by secreting the cytokine IL-21, which requires the transcription factor map. Yeah, that's about the summary. Yeah. Man, that was a great, exciting paper, especially for me because I have been, so I, I, I've been working on this Muran model of lupus and this paper gave me a lot of cool ideas that I will discuss later with Dr. Rao, but because we are already over the limit of the podcast, I think this would be a good time to wrap it up. Are you guys ready? Yep. To wrap <laughs> it up. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was a great discussion. Thanks a lot, Deepak, for joining us today. Thank uh, you for having I, me. I specifically Fantastic. learned a lot. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I really, I, I, I learned a lot too from the questions. I really appreciate the discussion. Thanks for having me. For everybody who's listening, if you guys, um, yeah, if, if you guys would like to know more about us, do follow us on Facebook. We have a Twitter page too, less active, but we are there. Sometimes we post memes on, on our Facebook page, which are much more funnier than our jokes on the podcast. <laughs> and with that we'll all see you later in the next episode bye bye guys bye